You're listening to So So Speaks, a different kind of podcast where each week we discuss everything and anything that matters. No boundaries, no limitations, just real conversations, real stories, and real facts. New episodes of So So Speaks every week. What's up, guys? Sona here. Thank you so much for tuning in to my first ever episode. I'm really excited to get this project off the ground. It's actually something that I've always wanted to do, but have kind of been apprehensive about doing it. So with that being said, I do want to thank those of you that were very positive and very encouraging because it was the push that I needed to finally start this podcast. So for that, I do thank you. So in terms of what type of podcast this is, it's not traditional in any sense of the word. I'm not sticking to any specific themes, which is why the introduction is pretty vague. I kind of wanted to leave everything open so that it was a platform where I could talk about anything and everything that I found relevant or interesting without being limited to a certain genre or theme, for instance. Let's get into it. So on today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the tragic death of Tamla Horsford. For those of you who don't know, Tamla Horsford was a 40-year-old African-American woman from Forsyth County, Georgia, who went to an adult sleepover and was found dead in the backyard the next morning. Now, there has been a lot of controversy surrounding this case. There are many who believe that her death was suspicious, including her family, and some people even believe that she was murdered. So I decided to talk about this case for two reasons. One, there were a lot of discrepancies in what was being reported by the media and what the police were saying. And two, there's just something about this case that really bothered me when I first heard about it. And so I decided that I was going to do my own research. So one thing that is paramount to this kind of story is outlining all the facts, and that's what I'm going to do. The first part is less about me giving you my opinion, but simply giving you the facts in chronological order as documented in the official incident report, the crime scene report, and the autopsy report, all of which I have read. Now, just to make it clear, I am not saying that everything that is written in these reports is exactly what happened. Obviously, the only people that really know what happened were the ones that were there that night. So just keep that in mind. And a quick disclaimer before we get into this, everything that I am about to state pertaining to this case and what occurred is coming directly from these reports. I'm not pulling anything out of thin air. Everything that I'm going to tell you is as written in the reports. And I would also like to extend my deepest and sincerest condolences to Tamla's family. This episode is in no way meant to be disrespectful or distasteful. On the contrary, I would like to bring awareness to her story and make sure that she isn't forgotten. Okay, so to start off with, we're going to talk about the people that were involved in this case. There were a lot of people involved in this case, but we're just going to start off with the main ones. So, of course, we have the victim, Tamla Horsford, who was 40 years old. Then we have Jean Marie Mayers, aged 44, who was the house owner. And then we have her boyfriend, Jose Manuel Barrera, age 27, who also happens to be a former felony probation agent for Forsyth County. So he did work in law enforcement. However, I used the past tense because he was actually fired for accessing the case files for this case from work. 
There were 10 other people involved as well, one of which was Madeline Lombardi, age 63, who is the aunt of Jean-Marie Mayers, the homeowner, who also happens to be the one that found Tamla's body. She actually lives in the house with Jean-Marie Mayers. On November 4th, 2018, at approximately 9 a.m., the police were dispatched to Jean-Marie Mayer's house after being notified that there was a deceased person on the premises. Once on the scene, Deputy Waldrop went to the backyard and observed a black female face down in the backyard of the residence. The homeowner, Jean-Marie Mayers, told him that the night before she had hosted a birthday party for herself at her residence. Later, this was clarified as being a joint birthday and football party. She invited the following people. Madeline Lombardi, Nicole Lawson, Marcy Harden, Sarah Cockerham, Stacy Smith, Michael Pellerino, Paula Seals, Thomas Smith, Jennifer Morell, Jose Barrera, and Bridget Fuller. The two men, Jose and Tom, went downstairs to watch football. According to Jean-Marie Mayers, the females were all drinking heavily, and apparently Tamla arrived with a bottle of tequila. Upon arrival, she took a shot of fireball and continued drinking her tequila mixed with Mountain Dew or water. The next morning, there was very little tequila left in the bottle. Jean-Marie Mayer said that at about midnight, everyone, guys included, sat around the table in the living room and played cards against humanity. The game continued for about an hour and they stopped. People began cleaning up and getting ready to settle in for the night. Jean said that Tamla had wanted people to stay up. Apparently, she was very social and kept engaging in conversation. At one point in the evening, Tamla had FaceTimed her husband and children so everyone could see her family. Okay, so pay attention to this next part because it's going to be important. So Deputy Waldrop was told that Tamla was the only smoker in the house that evening. She had gone out multiple times to smoke and had left her cigarette butts on the back porch on the ledge. Jose told him that while he was cleaning up the following morning, he found an unlit cigarette and a lighter laying on the floor of the porch. The brand of cigarette matched the brand smoked by Tamla. Okay, so going back to the night of the party. So they say that after they finished cleaning up, everyone separated and Tamla was left alone in the living room. And they say that this is the last time anyone saw her alive. So they found from the security alarm system that the back door leading to the back porch had been opened at 1.49 a.m. and closed at 1.50. The back door was reopened at 1.57 a.m. and was never secured back, meaning it was left open from 1.57 a.m. until the next morning. And this is what is confirmed by Jean-Marie Mayers, who says that when she went to it the following morning, it was slightly open. So Madeline was the first person to discover Tamla's body. Remember that Madeline is Jean-Marie Mayer's aunt who lives at the house with her. She tells 
the police officers that she had gone to the backyard to see what the temperature outside was and noticed Tamla laying face down in the backyard. She says that she watched her for a moment to see if she was moving and immediately became concerned because she wasn't. So she went to Jean-Marie Mayer's bedroom and told her of the situation. And that's when they called 911. Okay, so that was the account written by Deputy Waldrop, who was one of the first police officers on the scene, and that is his report, and it's based off of what they told him on his arrival. Okay, so now let's get into the specific timeline. Jean-Marie Mayers, the house owner, has a security system that sends notifications to her phone each time a door in her house is opened or closed, and it tells her exactly which door. So the verified timeline for that evening is as follows. Saturday, November 3rd, which was the night of the party, at 10.30 p.m., Nicole Lawson and Sarah Cockerham leave. So they have left the party. And according to Jose Barrera and Jean-Marie Mayers, they went to bed at 1.30 a.m. So Sunday, November 4th, which is the early hours after the party. So at 1.47 a.m., Bridget Fuller left. And she was the last person to see the victim alive. And she says that she was alone downstairs. And so at 1.49 a.m., the back door opened. At 1.50 a.m., the back door closed. And at 1.57 a.m., the back door opened again and it remained open the entire rest of the night. And at 4.10 a.m., Marcy Harden left. She had to go to work. At 7.45 a.m., Paula Seals left. At 8.30 a.m., Tom and Stacy Smith left. At 8.45 a.m. is the approximate time when Madeline Lombardi, the aunt of Jean-Marie Mayers, finds Tamla Horsford in the backyard. And that's when she goes upstairs to their room. And at 8.59, they call 911. And at 9.07, the first responders arrive on the scene which is Corporal Miller and Deputy Waldrop. So I know that was a lot of information to process, but I did put in all of that information deliberately because in a case like this, when there are so many people in and out, I think it's very important to know what's going on and to know what is happening in terms of the timeline. So keep in mind, because I do want to clarify this, everything that I have said before this point is what was written by Deputy Waldrop. Now, him and Captain Miller were the two first police officers on the scene. So they were the ones who were able to interview those who were there, because do not forget that most of the guests had already left, and they were able to interview those who were there and get their statements. So next, I'm going to talk about the investigators who arrive because they get their own statements. And that's when you start to see that there are discrepancies in this story. And there are a few things that just don't make any sense. So according to investigator Spriggs account, Tamla was found laying face down in the backyard. She was laying almost immediately at the base of an elevated back porch. She was clad in a one-piece pajama set, which was white and had a dog print on it. Tamla's right wrist was dislocated as if she had tried to brace herself from a fall. Additionally, there were two defects on Tamla's shins, which corresponded with a metal landscape, which was part of the yard and was located near her feet. 
This landscape divider was a piece of metal approximately one-eighth of an inch thick, which would have made cuts corresponding to what was seen on Tamla's shins. So she was lying face down, head downhill from her body. Her right arm was by her side. Her left arm was somewhat out from her body and bent at the elbow. So the second investigator, Christian M.E., stated that what was most notable when Tamla was turned over was the fact that she had come to rest face down. Her head had not been canted to one side or the other. Her right wrist was fractured or dislocated. They knew this because there was a large bump where her wrist met her hand, as well as a cut over the bump as if the bone had cut the skin from the inside. There were matching defects on both of Tamla's shins, as I stated earlier, and these corresponded, again, with the piece of metal landscape edging, which stood up approximately one inch from the surrounding ground. Other than the broken wrist and cuts on her shins, there were no obvious signs of injury, and Tamla was turned over to Coroner Bowen, who in turn transported her to the GBI for autopsy. Additionally to this, her property was inventoried, and this was done by CSI Fujimura and investigator Christian M.E. In her purse, they found a small amount of marijuana and rolling papers, and the marijuana they took for destruction. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the statements that were given to the investigators. So earlier we saw that there were statements that were given to Deputy Waldrop and Captain Miller. And now these same people also gave statements to the investigators once they arrived on the scene. So the first statement outlined by investigator Christian M.E. is that of Jose Barrera, the boyfriend of the homeowner, Jean Marie Mayers. But before he gets into the statement, he makes sure to outline in his report that he is familiar with Barrera because he recognized him from being a felony probation agent for Forsyth County. So as far as Jose's statement goes, he says that at the time him and Mayers went to bed, which was 1.30 a.m., Tamla was still awake. She told them that she was going outside to smoke a cigarette and would either go to sleep in one of Mayer's children's rooms or would sleep on the sofa. Jose said they went to bed and were awakened the next morning by Madeline Lombardi telling him that he needed to come and look at something. He said that is when Madeline took him to the body of Tamla Horsford. So in her statement, Jean Marie Mayers tells investigator Christian M.E., that she came up with the idea of inviting some girlfriends over for a pajama party. And she said that they had a good evening with some drinking and that everyone had gotten along really well. So she also said that when her and Jose were in the process of going to bed and were saying goodnight to Tamla, Tamla told them that she was going out to smoke and would be back in a few minutes. So she says that they went to bed, and the next morning they were awakened by Madeline Lombardi, her aunt, knocking on their door and asking for Jose. Jean said they went outside to find Tamla face down in the backyard. So the investigator asked both Jose and Jean how much Tamla had to drink and what condition she was in, and they both stated that she had brought her own bottle of tequila and had drank most of the bottle, but they both described her as being happy and not seeming overly intoxicated. So now we're going to move on to the statement given to investigator Christian M.E. by Madeleine Lombardi, 
who was the one that found the body and is Jean Marie Mayer's aunt. So she stated that she had gone to bed before anyone else the night of the party, and she had gotten up the next morning at around 8.30 a.m. and looked outside. When she did, she saw Tamla laying in the backyard. She said she went upstairs to get Jose and Jean, and she said Jose came outside and checked Tamla and then called 911. Now, this statement is very, very important. And if you have noticed, there is a discrepancy. I will talk more about it at the end, but maybe some of you have already noticed. But there is a discrepancy in this statement versus the statement that was given to Deputy Waldrop. I will come back to that at the end, but I just wanted to point it out. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the technical part of this case. But before we do that, there is one piece of information that I think is important to mention. So on November 5th, investigator Christian M.E. has a conversation with Tamla's father where he explains their theory for her death. And so he tells her father that it looked like she tripped on a piece of landscape edging and had fallen into the place and position she was in, but he could not tell him why she had died. But to them, this theory that she tripped seemed the most plausible at the time. Now I'll tell you why this is important, because on the next day, on November 6th, Investigator Christian M.E. speaks with Dr. Andrew Koopminers, who is the Associate Medical Examiner with the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, and he explains to him this theory. So he tells him this theory that she had fallen and had some sort of medical episode, and that's how she died. But Dr. Koopminer stated that it would have been impossible for Tamla to have received her injuries from a ground-level fall, meaning there was no way that she had just tripped over a piece of landscape edging and had fallen and died, because she had severe injuries, and she had a broken neck, for instance, a subdural hematoma, which is bleeding in the brain, on the right side of her skull, and a torn heart muscle. And so the investigator then explained that she had been found in front of a balcony, the deck of which was approximately 14 feet off the ground. And then Dr. Koopminer stated that, yes, a fall from the balcony could produce such injuries. And I'm definitely going to talk more about this later, but I just wanted to jog your memory a little bit. In the beginning, they talk about how she has two marks on her shins that correspond to this landscape edging, okay? But now we're finding out that her injuries were way too severe for her to have tripped over this landscape edging that was only a few inches from the ground and passed away. So now we know that her tripping over this landscape edging could not have been the cause of her death. It was only a few inches off the ground, but they said that she had two marks on her shins that corresponded with the height of this landscape edging. So if she indeed fell 14 feet to the ground, which we know is plausible based off of her injuries, what caused those two marks on her shins? Okay, so like I said, we're moving on to the more technical part of the report now, which is the crime scene unit report, as well as the autopsy and toxicology report. So I'll get back to my opinions and theories in a little bit. But first, we're just going to touch on this because obviously it's important. That being said, there is a lot of technical language involved, of course. So I'm just going to highlight the main parts, the most important parts, and then we can move on to what I think about this case. 
According to crime scene specialist M. Fujimura, Tamla's body was examined for post-mortem changes at approximately 11.05 a.m. And he found that there was rigor present as well as lividity and her body was cold to the touch. Okay, just to explain before we move on the difference between rigor mortis and lividity. Rigor mortis is the stiffening of the body after death, which usually happens approximately two hours after death. And lividity is the process through which the body's blood supply will stop moving after the heart has stopped pumping it around the inside of the person's body. Okay, now moving on to the autopsy and toxicology report. The autopsy revealed severe injuries of the head, neck, and torso, including, I'm probably going to butcher this, but subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is bleeding inside the brain, subdural hemorrhage, which is bleeding outside the brain, fracture of the second cervical vertebra, which is a broken neck, and a laceration of the heart, which is a deep cut or tear of the heart. Other injuries included abrasions of the face, left arm, left hand, and left leg, lacerations of the right wrist and right leg, and a dislocation of the right wrist, all of which, according to the coroner, are consistent with a fall. In terms of the toxicology report, they found alprazolam in her system, which is Xanax, They found THC, and she had a blood alcohol level of 0.238, which is fairly high. It's considered strong to very strong. And so that, on top of the Xanax as well as the THC, is consistent with what her friend said about her being intoxicated. Now we're going to move on to my opinions on this case. And before we do that, Quick disclaimer, once again, these are my opinions. They are only opinions. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm simply pointing out what I noticed once I read all of the reports. Okay, now is the part where I talk about my opinion and what I noticed from reading these documents. Obviously, these are my opinions once again, but I just want to put that out there and make it clear. Now, when I was reading these reports, I noticed a few things that didn't seem right to me. So I'm just going to go over them and it's going to be more of me talking and brainstorming. So if it's a bit rambly, I apologize, but this is how I'm naturally coming to these conclusions. So one thing that bothers me outright is this security system because there are no cameras. So the security system is essentially a system that tells her when the doors are opened and closed. By her, I mean Jean-Marie Mayers, the house owner. So she has a security system where she gets an alert if her door is opened or if her door is closed and it tells her exactly which door it is, which is fine. But how do you know who is opening which door? You don't. At the end of the day, in the report, All we know to verify is those who left, and that's it. After that, we don't really know who's opening and closing these doors. I'll explain why. So let's go through the timeline. At 1.47 a.m., Bridget Fuller left. She was the last person to see the victim alive, and she was alone downstairs. She, meaning Tamla, was alone downstairs, according to Bridget Fuller. So 1.47 a.m., Bridget Fuller leaves the house. At 1.49 a.m., the back door 
opened. And that's what the security system said. At 1.50 a.m., the back door closed. So they assumed this is when Tamla went out to smoke her cigarettes. And we can assume that she closed the door behind her. But then at 1.57 a.m., the back door opens again. So it's like, why would she open the door again? Maybe she forgot something or maybe someone else opened it. You know, we don't know. But we do know that at 1.57 a.m. until the next morning when her body was found, the door remained open. Which brings me to my next point. At 4.10 a.m., Marcy Harden left. So she had spent the night in the house and she left because she said that she had to go to work. And she left by the front door. And we know this because had she left by the back door, she would have definitely seen Tamla's body. But what I don't understand is how did she leave the house and not notice that the back door was open? Because remember, the back door was open from 1.57 until the next morning when the body was found. So how did she not notice that the back door was open? That can be explained because it was 4.10 a.m probably still dark and she was in a hurry she was going to work she could have still been drunk from the night before who knows but then at 7 45 a.m paula seals left and so how did she not notice that the back door was open i mean who knows and then at 8 30 a.m tom and stacy smith left and this is 8 30 a.m the sun is out and they clearly left by the front door otherwise they would have been the first to find tamla's body and they didn't notice that the back door was open. 15 minutes later, at 8.45 a.m. is when Tamla's body was found by Jean-Marie Mayer's aunt, Madeline. And so then at 8.59 is when they called 911. And by 9.07, the police were on scene. But it just doesn't make sense to me that that amount of people left the house and didn't notice that the back door was open. This brings me to my next point. Everything that I've said up until now can be explained if we really want to explain it. Okay, we could say based off of the layout of the house, it's possible that they couldn't see the back door from their positioning and when they were leaving, etc., etc., that's all well and good. I will say that I did see photos of the house and to me it seemed that you could see the back door from the front door, but you know, you never know. I have never been there, so I can't say one thing or the other regarding that. I can just say what I've noticed based off of what I have read. But one thing that is very clear and that I have verified and re-verified and re-re-verified is that there is a guest that is completely unaccounted for and is not on the timeline but was present that evening. And that's what I don't understand. Where is she? When did she leave? And why isn't she on the timeline? All of the guests have been logged on the timeline as leaving aside from one. Jennifer Ann Morell. She is nowhere on the timeline. She's not listed as leaving the house. She is literally listed as being at the party and then nothing. Had she stayed the night and was present when the body was found, she would have been mentioned as one of the people present when the body was found in the report, and she wasn't. Investigator Christian M.E. actually mentions in his report the names of the people that were inside the house when he arrived, and she is not one of them. On top of that, 
Had she left via the front door, there would have been a record of her leaving via the front door. Then again, as I told you, the security system only tells you when the doors are opened and closed. So we know that the door was opened again at 157, the back door, and was left open the entire night. But had it been her that left via the back door at 157, she would have been the last person to see Tamla alive and not Bridget Fuller. But they made sure to mention that it was Bridget Fuller that was the last person to see Tamla alive. So in no way does this make sense. It just really seems odd to me that Jennifer Morrell is listed as a witness and one of the people that was at the party. But on the timeline, she is nowhere on here in any capacity as leaving. And that just seems very odd to me. Especially when all the other guests are accounted for. Every single person that was there that night is accounted for on the timeline except for her and that just doesn't make sense to me because literally every single person aside from her is listed with specific times and had she left in between those times the security system would have locked the door as being open yet every single time the door's been open except for the back door remaining open the entire night there's a person listed next to that time but we know that there's no way she left by the back door because then she would have definitely seen Tamla in the backyard. So it doesn't make sense. Another thing I noticed was the discrepancy between Madeline's statement to the first police officers on the scene and the one given to investigator Christian M.E. And just to remind you, Madeline is Jean Marie Mayer's aunt and the one who found Tamla's body. So in the statement written by Deputy Waldrop, she tells him that she had gone to the backyard to see what the temperature outside was like and noticed Tamla laying face down. Okay. But in the statement given to investigator Christian M.E., she said that she had gotten up and looked outside and that's when she saw the body. That to me is a big discrepancy. There is a big difference between looking outside and going outside, especially when it comes to something like this, where there is a person who's passed away. I can understand that she would have been stressed maybe. But there is a big difference between looking outside your window and then going to check the temperature outside. That is a big difference. So the third thing that I found extremely odd was Jose B telling the detectives that he had been cleaning up the following morning. Now, the context behind that is that while he was cleaning up, he found an unlit cigarette and a lighter on the floor of the porch, which matched the brand Tamla smoked. So that's what he was telling the detectives. But what I don't understand is why would you be cleaning up when a body has just been discovered in your yard? And we know for a fact that it it wasn't before they found Tamla's body because they made sure to mention that Madeline had found the body first and then had gone up to get them from their bedroom. And that's when they came downstairs and called 911. So that means in between the time that they called 911 and the police arriving, which was only a few minutes, that's when he was cleaning up. So why was he cleaning up? It was essentially at this point, it was a crime scene. So why are you cleaning up what is essentially a crime? scene. 
So it's all these little things that are adding up that are making me think that something is very off about this story. And it could be that I'm overthinking it, I'm overanalyzing it, but her friends and family also find everything that was told odd. And I have to agree with them because there's something about this story that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. But I'll get to that in my conclusion. I have one more thing that I noticed that was odd to me. But I have to, of course, give another disclaimer because you know how people can be. I am not a medical expert in any way, shape or form. So I am not claiming anything. I am just saying I noticed this and to me it was weird. Okay. At this point, we know that she fell a significant distance to the ground. She fell 14 feet as is reiterated by her injuries, and I do believe that that was the cause of her injuries. But I find the position in which her body was found odd. Her legs were straight out behind her and her neck was straight as well. Yet we know from her autopsy report that her neck was broken. And one thing the police actually mentioned in their report as something being notable, meaning it was something that they noticed, was that she came to rest facing down. There was also never again any mention of the matching defects on both her shins that investigators claimed matched a piece of metal landscape edging, which stood approximately one inch off the surrounding ground. So because she fell 14 feet, we know that she didn't trip over that metal edging. So once again, what caused those two marks on her shins? Okay, so now to conclude. Now, I know that was a lot of information and a lot of detail to retain, but I did it deliberately because when I first came across this case and was reading up on it, I was only reading media articles and I think I watched like one YouTube video on it. And there were so many discrepancies between these articles that it just didn't make sense to me, which is why I went and downloaded the actual police reports. And that's when I was shocked that things were so different in the reports. And that's the problem with the media. You cannot always believe what you are reading written by the media because they try to elicit a certain response in people. Now, I'm not saying that I think that everything happens as they said it did in the report based off of what the witnesses said. I think that something is off about this case 100%. But at the same time, in some of the articles, they were saying how it took them two hours to call 911, which is false. They called 911, and within a few minutes, the police were on scene. It didn't take them two hours to call 911. That is completely fabricated. There's evidence to prove the time that they called 911, okay? They have phone records for that. So it's those type of things that I just don't agree with. So this is how I feel about this situation. Do I think that the witnesses that were there are hiding something? Yes, I do. Do I think more happened than we know? Yes, I do. Do I think she was murdered in cold blood? No, I do not. I think that something happened and she passed away. But I'm not going to go into speculation in this episode, okay? I'm actually going to have a part two to this episode where I discuss the case with my friends because it's good to have a different perspective. And who knows, they may have noticed something that I didn't notice or they might not agree with what I noticed. So definitely stay tuned for that. But like I said, do I think that there's something odd about this case? Yes. Do I think that they are hiding something? I do, 100%. They are definitely hiding something. And that is proved by Jose B's 
attempt to access this file from his work computer. There is no way that you would access a file from your work computer knowing that you're putting your job at risk unless you are completely desperate. So what was pressing him enough that he felt the need to put his job at risk to access this file? And that, to me, is extremely, extremely suspect. So with that being said, thank you so much for listening to the first ever episode of So So Speaks. I hope you will tune into part two of this episode. And other than that, I wish you the best wherever you are. And I'll see you soon. Bye. Yeah, they can't hold us back. We on another level. Yeah, it's that new age. Ain't it something special? Yeah, we gonna change the game. We gonna live forever. This is the new age Now they wanna play cause they're tryna get paid But they can't cause they're too late We got stacks already making it rain They can't afford us now Jump on the jet switching borders now Roll me off when I was 17